almost every night. And I find myself repeating myself, like I'm old or something. But in our conversation, almost every single time I talk to her somewhere, I seem to say, it's just crazy. And that's when we're talking about what's going on in Guatemala, where she's still stuck. And pray for her. She has a ticket to come home 10 days from now, and we pray that the ticket holds to be a good ticket, and they actually get her home. But even when we talk about things that are going on in the United States, or even in Washington State, still I say, I can't help myself. It's just crazy. But, um, you know, Jesus talked about standing on a firm foundation so that when the storm comes and the winds blow and the rains come, we are not on sinking sand, we are on a solid rock. And when he said that, he wasn't talking about the storms of this world, even though it's true enough that when we stand firm on the word of God, and in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can withstand all the storms that the world brings to us. But Jesus was talking about that ultimate storm that will blow, which will test every man in his soul of souls. It is the storm of the judgment of God which is surely coming. And on that day, we need to be standing on solid ground. Isn't it so great that whether we think about That or the challenges of this life, coming here to this building is the one true and safe and right place that we can be in all of creation with everything that is crazy, you guys. This place, these churches are the safe place to be, the true place to be, the right place to be. And we want to see it And cherish it as the treasure that it is. Our local church, for every believer, the local church is a haven of wrath. It's a refuge, a shelter in a time of storm. It is the family above all families. It is the work above all works that we come here to do together. It is the truth above all truths, the faith above all faiths. The salvation that is found in no other but in the name of Jesus Christ. So I hope you feel that in your heart. I hope you felt it as you rumbled across the gravel this morning and parked your car, that this is so great to be in church together with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, Just before I get into my my, my message, I just want to acknowledge that uh, my folks are here this morning, Mike Kisman, Mike and Janice Kisman, my parents here. Are here. They, they found out I was here and they live in Colville. They said, well, we have to come. I thought, don't you have your own church? Not that they're not welcome here, but won't they be missed there? But I don't know that they're meeting yet. And then my good friends Greg and Julie Carmen are here from our Spokane world, and they found out I was here. And they said, well, maybe we'll come. Well, they did come four minutes before we started. <laughs> they got here, and um, they weren't late, but how thrilling to see them. Uh, my good construction buddies here, Larry Boggs in church today. Welcome. Good to see you. And uh, Pete, good to see you. Dan Christian, my roofing buddy. Nice to see you. I just. 
This is your church and I'm a guest. I chose this morning a message about Zacchaeus because I like it. I like this story, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And we do sing that kid's song, the Zacchaeus, the wee little man, in vacation Bible school especially, and Sunday school and children's church sometime. And the kids like that. There are hand motions. I saw they knew it. I was remembering. But the story of Zacchaeus is way more than a simple little story that appeals to children because he was short and climbed a tree which all kids love to do. Packed into these 10 verses are some very profound theological truths. One of the biggest themes of all scripture is touched on, and that is who is the family of God anyway? The perpetual drama that we always see in the gospel of our wonderful Jesus always being chipped away at by naysayers is found again in this story. And so it's my delight to walk into it with you, the story of Zacchaeus, which is really just yet another episode of the story of Jesus Christ. There are several players in this drama. There is Zacchaeus, who is short. We'll talk about that in a minute. And there is Jesus. There are the grumblers. But more than that, there were great crowds of people in Jericho who, because Jesus was passing through their city, this was their chance to see him. And so they are unnamed, but they are there. They are the anonymous crowd that was so great. It prevented Zacchaeus from seeing what he wanted to see. So let's read the passage and then we'll get into all that's good here. So if you have a Bible, I welcome you to turn to Luke chapter 19, first 10 verses. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, which is the only good one. (laughs) I noticed everybody's moved on to that ESV, which is very hip if you're a skinny jeans preacher. But it is truly no better. And sometimes in my old age, I think we'd really all be better off to go back to the King James, which really serves as a good basis for the text of all the other good versions since then. Attempts to be faithful to the Greek and has some good English vocabulary words in there, which would be good to teach our children who are dumbing down more and more every decade. For what it's worth, those are some of my preferences, but I am not speaking ex-cathedra in those things. Zacchaeus 19, 1 through 10, New American Standard. And he, that is Jesus, entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. 
for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and he came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's bow for a minute. Our Father, we pray that we will see and drink in your word as it truly is, your word. Oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's go through it item by item. We are in Jericho. Do you know where Jericho is? You all know the other children's song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. You know that from Joshua. But Jericho is quite a place. It's a city that's in the Jordan Valley near the Jordan River, close to the Dead Sea. It is a place that is one of the oldest known cities in the world. And they've done archaeological excavations there that go back probably, they think, 10,000 years. Of course, if you read the King James Bible, you know the earth's only 6,000 years old. So take that with a grain of salt. But it's old. And it's one of those cities where they continue to build and rebuild and rebuild on different iterations of the city as it was destroyed various times so that it's a, a mound or a tell. And they're still doing a lot of excavations there. It's just fascinating. It is not only one of the oldest cities of the world, possibly the oldest that we know of, but it is also the lowest in elevation of any city in the world. You may all know that the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea, full of minerals, because it is 1,400 feet below sea level. Well, Jericho is near the Jordan River just before it dumps into the Dead Sea, and Jericho itself is 864 feet below sea level. So it's down in that great rift valley. And to get to Jerusalem, you have to go up through the Judean hills and over the, past the Mount of Olives and just over the edge into Jerusalem, which is at 2,575 feet above sea level. So Jericho is way down there. And It's a wonderful place because it's fed by springs of water that come out of the Judean hills. So even though the Judean hills look like a desert wasteland, pretty dry, it's kind of like driving up the hills out of, uh, well, to Ellensburg. That's pretty bad. There's only three trees, you know, between Cleelum and Spokane. And... It's dry there. How many of you have been to the Holy Land, by the way, and had a chance to go to Jerusalem or Jericho or the Dead Sea? Anybody? It's, it's just really wonderful to see it with your own eyes, what we read about in the Bible. We actually 
went in our tour bus down a windy road from Jerusalem, past the Mount of Olives, up over the peak and down and winding down all the way to the Jordan River. It was terrifying. Um, Our bus driver pulled off the side of the road once and kind of let the nose of his bus, which is, you know, 16 feet beyond the front wheels, just kind of turn over that cliff. And we saw a burned out bus down at the bottom (laughs) and thought, was that your other bus? (laughs) Pretty scary. I haven't been that scared since my dad used to do the same thing on hiking trips. And we would drive up these logging roads to get to the beginning of the trailhead where we did a lot of hiking in western Washington. And on Bandera Mountain over there by Snoqualmie Pass, you could hardly back your car up and go forward and do a five-point turnaround to get pointed back home down the logging road. I don't like any of that stuff. But Jericho was a well-watered place in a sense. It had these springs, and so it was also called in the scriptures the city of palms. Think of it as the Palm Springs Resort, really. Do you know that King Herod had a winter palace in Jericho? Because it was kind of chilly there in Jerusalem. Why not head east a little bit? A nice low desert Palm Springs and hang out for three months. It's like going to Guatemala. It's a good change. And in fact, a lot of wealthy people, aristocrats, had places in Jericho. They liked to go there. Jesus is passing through Jericho, and actually, this story is near the end of the narrative of Jesus' life because he's about to ascend up that Jericho road, which is where the story of the Good Samaritan is set. It's kind of a dangerous road. Robbers were there, and it's uphill. And he is about to go past the Mount of Olives himself and ride on that little colt and present himself as the King of Kings to Jerusalem for that final holy week before he gave his life a ransom for many. So this is kind of the last fun stop. And he's passing through. Well, so he's had at least three years of public ministry, Jesus has by this point. And so the word about Jesus had gone everywhere. And you have to know that when a celebrity is known to be coming through your town, if you can, you skip out of work for an hour or two and you want to go see. So we do that all the time for a football team, a champion basketball team. These people wanted to see the greatest thing ever, the one who could be the Messiah. Zacchaeus is one of those people. We don't know what he had heard or what he knew or really all that he believed about Jesus, but he definitely wanted to see him and he was part of that crowd. And we learned some things about Zacchaeus in the story. What do we know about him? Number one, he's a tax gatherer, but not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax gatherer in his zone. And uh, you may know that uh, the Romans kind of had a tax farm system. 
So there were people who collected taxes who then turned over their taxes to the regional tax collector who then turned his taxes over to the provincial tax collector who then turned over the revenues to Rome. And everybody was bitter about it. You think you don't like the IRS? How would you like to pay taxes to Caesar? It was a bitter pill to swallow for all the provinces of Rome. Thus the question that was put to Jesus that last week of his life. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes? Kind of a timely question, but we won't go there. Well, the thing about the tax gathering system is that um, they weren't as uh, noble as the tax people are today. In the tax farm system, at every level, it was possible and it was actually known and it was expected that that tax collector kept a commission for himself. And who measured that exactly? Probably his wife. And we will assume that the tax collector at every level gave most of the proceeds to the next guy up the chain. I don't know how efficient that was, but what we do know is the second thing about Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and hmm, he was very rich. How do you get rich holding a federal office? It's just amazing to me that as a public servant serving for the public good, doing your duty, it should be possible to become rich. How can that happen? Unimaginable, isn't it? But, wow, he seemed to do well as chief tax guy. How well would he be liked as maybe the second or third guy up the totem pole? Not liked at all. The third important attribute about Zacchaeus for our purposes of our story is that like you, some of you, he was short. Let's have a shout out for short people. And if my wife was here, she'd be shouting amen because she's all of 5'2", and I think she's shrunk. I, think, I bet she, she's 4'9". Secretary for the Northern Mountain District, my good Fred Virginia Anderson, is shorter than Laurel. She might be 4'9". And um, I haven't been short for a long time, but it's not easy to be a short person. So Zacchaeus, uh, for all of his uh, important position and his wealth, he had that one deficit. He was short. Maybe it didn't bother him at all living in Palm Springs. But he was short. And um, that attribute actually creates the drama in the story for us, right? For with all his attributes, being a tax collector, being rich as a corollary to that, and being short, he had one more characteristic that's important for the story, and that is he was interested in Jesus, And may I just say, you know people with characteristics, some good, some bad. People in this town that you 
don't care for so much. But whether a person is cute, rich, powerful, tall or short, hated or loved, red, yellow, black, or white. The most important thing about a person is their interest in Jesus Christ. And that is really what creates the drama here. He wanted to see Jesus. So, how tall is a sycamore tree? When I was a kid, I climbed these awesome cedar trees in Seattle, Washington, and they were fabulous. They grew straight and tall, and they didn't have a lot of pitch on them like all the fir trees. They had nice smooth bark. And I just loved to climb up this cedar tree in my backyard and I'd take a book up there and just read a book perched up in the tree. And, uh, you know, trees on the west side are magnificent. Those old growth cedars are really, 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 really big. I think a sycamore tree is pathetic compared to that. But all he needed to do was to see over the heads of the crowd. So even if this was a six to eight footer with a little notch in it, that would be sufficient. So Zacchaeus did climb a tree because he wanted to see Jesus. That's the setup. That's the, that's the setting for the story. And now comes the narrative. A little bit of back and forth statement and response and response and response and response. And if you look at who is speaking here and the order in which they speak, this is an A, B, C, B, A dialogue here as this plays out. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. And he climbed that tree for Jesus was about to pass that way. And indeed, Jesus did come by. In verse 5, we begin. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now, if you were Zacchaeus, if I was Zacchaeus, my heart would be racing. Because his goal was just to see him. Maybe he would have the opportunity to hear him speak and say something awesome. Maybe, maybe even see him perform a miracle for some beggar or blind person or leper there on the street. But I am sure the last thing that he expected was to be singled out. Zacchaeus, come on down. Are you kidding me? The greatest personality to have ever walked on the stage of life in Palestine ever is passing through his city. And he made a valiant attempt to get a good view from that sycamore tree. And the result of it is a personal call out 
from Jesus Christ. Beyond his wildest dreams, don't you think? If that happened to you, how would you feel? Would your knees be knocking? Would you lose your grip on the tree? (laughs) What? Pretty exciting. Not only does Jesus call him out, but he invites himself to his house. So he not only gets to see Jesus and hear from Jesus, be acknowledged by Jesus, but he's going to go hang out with Jesus. Not bad for an afternoon off work. Taxes can wait. Notice that Zacchaeus's determination to see Jesus is matched by Jesus' determination to see Zacchaeus. Jesus matches him and more than matches him. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus so bad, it says in verse 4, he ran ahead of the crowd And he climbed a tree, pretty eager to see him. He didn't go to the parade and say, well, it looks like it's crowded here. I'll never make it to the curb to see those floats go by, so I'll just, I'll go back to work. No, he was determined, determined to see Jesus. Ran ahead. Now, when you you watch short guys run, you know, based on my sermon last week about running to win, um, that's always amusing to me. However, I will say my walk, my wife actually walks faster than I do, even though her legs are only about 19 inches long. <laughs> Somehow with my amazing stride, she is faster. So behold the awesomeness of short people. Zacchaeus ran. He was eager. He climbed a tree. He really was pretty determined to see Jesus. But now look at Jesus match him and see the intensity in Jesus' response. Verse 5, he uses the word hurry. And I did note the children's song was quite in error. Because Zacchaeus, you come down. Well, that's simple and that's great for a kid's song. But Jesus didn't say you come down. He said hurry and come down. There's an urgency there. He says, today, we're not going to make an appointment. I'm not going to give you my business card and set something up for like the day after tomorrow after I do my vacation stuff here in Jericho. I want to come to your house right now, today. He says, I must stay at your house. An imperative there. This needs to happen. Today, hurry. We have an appointment. It's a divine appointment. (laughs) It's pretty great. And so I just make the observation in generalizing that as much as we, any of us, think we're looking for God, you need to know something, friend. 
As much as you might be interested in looking for God, he's interested in looking for you. The Lord Jesus Christ in his omniscience knew that there was at least one person in that crowd and one that was singled out who had a real appetite for the kingdom of God and a curiosity about the Messiah. And maybe Zacchaeus just had a mustard grain size of faith or desire. But it was met. It was matched. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Super awesome here, and it goes way beyond what you might discern from a children's song. Number one, Jesus knew his name, Zacchaeus. See, that would have caused me to fall out of the tree right there. I've heard my name called on a number of occasions in my life, once by my fourth grade teacher. Just minding my business, talking up a blue streak with my friends during the middle of class time. And she said, Lee Kissman, you come right up here and stand in the front of the class. It was not for honor, I assure you, not for honor and glory that Mrs. Schluting called me to the front of her class. The Lord Jesus Christ is divine. He is the son of God knew him by name, called him out. And if he knows his name, you know he knows his heart. thought, man, there is a little rich guy up in that tree that is seeking after me and my kingdom. He shall not be disappointed this day. Zacchaeus, this is your day, man. We're going to lunch. I mean, who invites themselves over to someone's house for lunch? I do it all the time. I feel super guilty about it, but I'm not beyond, I'm not above doing it, as many of you well know, Pete, Dan, Mike. But Jesus is not above it. I must come to your house today. It's fabulous. It is fabulous. I think of the people that the Lord called by name, and you know the stories too. Adam, Adam, where art thou? Abraham, Abraham, go and offer your son as a sacrifice. And so Abraham, as a man of faith, went up the mountain with his son, raised up the knife, was ready to do it, and the Lord called out his name a second time. Abraham, Abraham, I see now that you fear God. Don't do it. Don't do it. From the burning bush, Moses, Moses. You've seen the movie. It's fabulous. And you know exactly how it happened. A little boy being raised by Eli the priest. Samuel. Samuel thought, Eli must be calling me. He goes running in to find the priest. You called me, sir? Wasn't me. You ain't hearing things. Go back to bed, boy. So he did. Samuel. Three times he heard his name called. And then Eli discerned, it's the Lord. 
He said, boy, if your name gets called again, you say, speak, for thy servant is listening. And the little boy went back to bed, and what did he hear? Samuel, Samuel, here I am. And I noticed in double-checking these that every single one of these godly men, when they heard their name called, said exactly the same thing, at least in the New American Standard Bible, which is always right. They all said, after they heard their name called twice, here I am. And this Zacchaeus, no less than any of those heroes of faith, when he heard his name called by the Jesus he wanted to see, He scurried down that tree. It says, gladly, gladly received him. He hurried and came down and received him gladly. In a word saying, here I am. Not bad for an evil tax collector. You know, the Lord calls generally and particularly. He's calling all the nations and all of humanity to himself, and he calls in a thousand ways. He shouts through the creation. He shouts through conscience. He shouts through circumstances. He surely shouts through his word. And every time a preacher steps into a pulpit in any church in America that is Christian and preaches from the Bible, Jesus is calling. But there is also a particular call. And you felt it and you know it. There is a tap on your shoulder and the Lord is saying, Lee. Saul of Tarsus heard it call. Very particular. Saul, Saul, double just so he knew he was in good company with Abraham and Moses and Samuel and the other prophets. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And um, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me, right? Calling, O sinner, come home. When the Lord speaks to you and asks you to come to him, asks you to serve him, I hope you are ready to say, here I am, like Isaiah. Here I am, send me, send me. I used to watch a lot of TV when I was a kid because that's what you do when you go home for lunch and you live two blocks away from your high school. So I used to, at the lunch bell, race out of the back of my school run across the asphalt where the portables were, illegally jump the six-foot chain-link fence because I'm sure it was a closed campus. But I was in track, you know, so in a single bound like Superman, I was over that fence, ran two blocks to my house and turned on TV reruns and ate my soup and sandwich for exactly 21 minutes. And then I raced back to my school and was in my chair by the bell every day. How many of you remember the TV show, The Price is Right? Bob Barker, 
Larry Boggs, come on down. Oh, man, how exciting to be invited to come on down. Well, Zacchaeus is having the ultimate come on down experience, man. And there's more than a shiny new car here. So Zacchaeus received Jesus Christ, who wouldn't? More than he ever dreamed, he's now going to fellowship with Jesus at his home. Now, Jesus initiated this, Zacchaeus responds, and now we come to the middle of our episode and we see the grumblers in verse 7. They aren't named, so who are they? Sadducees, Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, I don't know. Apparently it doesn't matter here. They're just grumblers. They saw what was happening and they were not happy and said, Jesus, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. How awful. How awful that Jesus would go hang out with a man like that. Now, everybody probably dislikes Zacchaeus for the reasons we already talked about. He is a tax collector. He is rich, probably at their expense. And he's also not Jewish. What manner of name is Zacchaeus? Linguist, come on, what do you think? Greek, sure, it's a Greek name. It's probably Greek heritage. And, um, you know, Greek culture definitely impressed itself on the whole Middle East because of Alexander the Great. And that was certainly true in all these cities in the Jordan Valley. So he's a Greek rich, bad guy. And these guys don't like it. So they complained. Now, if you were Zacchaeus and heard the grumbling, had the invitation, what would you say? He might have said, hey, man, I'm as good as any of you guys I am. Why are you disdaining me and this opportunity with Jesus? I'm as good as any of yous. But what we have in Zacchaeus responding to the grumblers is a true demonstration of his heart. And we see here true repentance and true humility, I would say. He did two things. Number one, he promised to um, give to charity. He said, um, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. That's pretty extreme. I don't know what was in his heart exactly, why he wanted to see Jesus, but now that he has an opportunity to have fellowship with Jesus, And Jesus is in his heart and people are grumbling and he's getting criticism. He could have said anything at all, but this is what he chose to say. And the scripture says that whatever you have in your heart, it does spill out in your words and deeds eventually. And this is what spilled out of Zacchaeus. In the exhilaration of his fellowship with Jesus and under the pressure of the criticism that came from the grumblers, this is what spilled out. 
And what you and I say in dramatic situations tells everything about us. Well, this is what you learn about Zacchaeus today. In his life at this time, he confesses that he wants to make this charitable contribution to the poor. And secondly, we see a sense of repentance here shown in restitution to the extreme. And he says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, you might have wondered if that was lame. Like when he said, well, if I, if I have defrauded anybody, I will replace it times four. I've had situations in conversations with people when they were really rude to me and then I go and confront them about it. Or if they're rude to someone else and they just say, well, if I offended you, I'm sorry. I was like, that is not good enough. What do you mean, if I offended you? You surely did. What I want to hear you say is, I know that I offended you. I intended to offend you. I'm sorry that I hurt you, and I I apologize, and I'll make it right. What do you mean, if? If I did anything wrong, you know, God is my witness, knows I didn't, but you fools made me think I did, so. Theoretically, I'm sorry. You, you've, have any of you guys had one of those encounters? Church people are great at this. We are pros. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I really think that Zacchaeus was opening himself up to legitimate claims against his stewardship as a tax collector. And so it was like, Come one, come all, go ahead and line up my office door. And if I gave you a bad deal on your taxes, let's make it right. Anybody of anything. So I think rather than being weak and generalized, I think this was strong and an open, honest intention to make restitution. To anyone. Pretty amazing. That's his heart. And um, my wife has a saying, I don't know if she got it out of the Bible, but I know it's true. And she says, Repentance doesn't need instructions. Like with little kids, it does. Like, okay, if you're sorry, you will do chores for your brother for two weeks. Okay, I am, I'm really sorry. But with a grown-up, if we've done wrong and we know we've done wrong, we want to make it right and we really truly have godly sorrow for the error of our ways, it doesn't need instruction. It will gush out. And the confession will be true and thorough and genuine and appropriate. And the follow-through with the making it right will happen thoroughly when a person is really sorry. You can't have a Sunday school to teach people how to repent. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And isn't it glorious when it happens? When someone truly has a change of heart? May this church resound with the testimonies of people who have done wrong all their lives and found the Lord Jesus Christ and had the courage to go into this community to business people and in social relationships at the school and at the job and say, 
I am so sorry. I have not been the man I need to be. I will never be like that again. What can I do to make it right? And that is the most beautiful kind of a story you can ever hear. And even as believers, when we should know better, but when we stumble and trespasses and sins, even against each other, how glorious when repentance teaches us to just make it right. It's a sweeter song than anything we just sang here with the overhead. That is the miracle of the church. Changed lives in Jesus Christ. A whole community of people who become what they never were before because of his power within us that leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Super job, Zacchaeus. But I don't think he was just manufacturing this. It was pouring out of his heart. So we get back to the last response in our A, B, C, B, A scheme here, and that is verse 9 and 10. What Jesus has to say to sew this up. What does Jesus say after having observed everything about what Zacchaeus has done and said this day? With the backdrop of the grumblers, he says, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. What a packed statement. Jesus called him down out of that tree and says, Today I need to come to your house. I have an appointment with you that I already knew about before I ever saw you in that tree and before you ever saw me from the tree. But something very special was destined to happen today. And indeed, it has happened today because today salvation has come to this house because you wanted to meet the Savior and you have met the Savior and you have responded appropriately from your heart in all that the kingdom of God calls us to be. And so, as the scripture said, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. When Zacchaeus made a plan to go into those crowds to see Jesus that day, do you think he expected any of this? No, sir. He never expected to be able to see Jesus that closely. He was happy to climb in a tree and see him from a distance. Never expected Jesus to come into his house and be in his personal space. But when the Lord sees your heart and reciprocates, that's what he does. He comes home to reside in you and with you. Never expected to offer half his possessions to the poor that day to Jesus' face with the backdrop of those detractors. Never thought he was going to open up his tax office the next day to give refunds. But here he is saying the words. I bet you he thought, I can't believe I'm saying this. My wife is going to kill me. That vacation she planned and the yacht we were going to buy to sail on the Jordan is gone. It's, it's spontaneous and real. But I bet you he never thought this. I bet he never thought that he was going to hear that afternoon from the lips of Jesus. Today, salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus. 
Man, if that all happened to me, I'd say church is over. Let's sing the closing hymn. (laughs) Right? What more could you ever ask for than to hear from the Lord? Your soul is right and you are saved. You are mine and I am yours. It doesn't get any better than that. In the second part of that verse 9, he also says this strange thing that Zacchaeus also is a son of Abraham. Well, what is a son of Abraham? It's a Jewish person. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the chosen people, the people of promise, the people of God, the people who will inherit the kingdom of God which shall be restored according to the prophets. And the Lord Jesus is telling Zacchaeus that even though he is Greek and he is a tax collector and he is evil and rich, because of his heart, he is as much a child of promise as any physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are probably those grumblers. How they probably hated to hear him say that. But the inheritance is available for the Gentile as well as for the Jew, which is a huge biblical theme, as you guys all know, as Paul said in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what has happened here? is the fulfillment of the full scope of prophecy where even in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 56, for example, it says, even if you are an Ethiopian, if you shall fear the Lord and follow his ways, you too shall be included in the promise. Yet others will I add, God says. This is a fabulous thing because, are we not all Gentiles here? Mostly, right? This is our story right here. Same promise, same opportunity, same confirmation for us. If we shall fear the Lord and have a right heart before him and seek the Lord Jesus Christ, we get to be grafted into that main original olive tree of Israel as Gentiles. And we're part of the kingdom. America is full of us. And it is a blessing. Then Jesus gives his personal mission statement at the end. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What do we take away from this sermon? Three things. Number one, be like Zacchaeus. Say yes to the Lord. Say yes to the Lord and be saved. And say yes to the Lord and follow him in all of your ways. If you've been resisting him in any way in your life and saying, actually, Lord, no, please, no, thank you, no, never, check yourself. There are great blessings ahead for ourselves when we are like Zacchaeus, eager to see Jesus, delighted to have a relationship with him, presenting before him a right heart. Secondly, let us not be grumblers. It is amazing, but I have seen this even with church people. That when people are trying to find the Lord and they come with all their baggage, sometimes we fold our arms and say, well, I'm not so sure I like all of this. I really wish that person wouldn't have come to our church. It's going to ruin our whole church. I've known them since they were seven years old here in Chewila. 
We should never be like that. If the Lord is drawing somebody, and even if you don't understand the storyline, if they are moving toward Christ, let us never grumble, but let's double down on the invitation and say, I'm so glad that you are here. It's hard enough to come to church when you are not part of it. And folks coming in who need to be part of this growing, thriving throng of believers don't need resistance from the troops here. They need the welcome man put, mat put out and saying, we are so thrilled that you're here. Would you come to my house for lunch today? Tell me your story. They don't bite. Right? You are invincible as a Christian. You cannot be hurt by an unbeliever. Do you realize that? Open up your heart, open up your arms, and open up your house to them. And give the invitation that Jesus gives. The third thing is just that. We need to make our personal mission statement Jesus' mission statement. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Job one for Jesus is calling sinners to come home. And that needs to be job one for us here too. And in all that we propose to do in this place, in all the classes we may teach or the songs we may sing or the buildings we may build, the only thing that ultimately matters is bringing people to the Savior that they may enjoy Him for all eternity. And so we're busy. We multitask. But always at the forefront of our minds and our top priority needs to be evangelism proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in word and in deed and everything that we do. Surely that is the point of the story. Let us close in prayer. We thank you, Father, that you are the God who knows us, the God who calls, the God who invites us to come running to you. I pray, Lord, that the gracious heart that you had for Zacchaeus and the same one that you had for us, with all of our personal baggage, Lord, you are good and kind, faithful and true, gracious and patient. And I pray that you'll grant to us that same heart for every man, woman, and child in these valleys. That this local church may be known as a welcoming place where the light is always on, the door is unlocked, and the welcome mat is there, and table is set, and there's a seat for them. Help us, Father, always to be willing to say yes to you and to be eager, eager to see you, Lord, but eager to receive you as Zacchaeus was like children, always so glad for the fellowship of the family. I pray for the challenges that we have in these present days in this church, Lord, with the virus challenges and the pastor search challenges, that you will grant wisdom and grace to emerge from those things stronger and shining more brightly, that we may keep the main things first and at the forefront. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, for our last uh, song here, Till the Storm Passes By. And I'd like to say also to, to kind of piggyback on what uh, our pastor this morning shared is man does not derive our greatest happiness from what we do for ourselves, but what we accomplish for others. So let's put others first. Thank you.